A new generation is stepping up. There are now 26 millennials in Congress, a five-fold increase gained in the 2018 midterms alone. They're governing Midwestern cities, college towns, running for city council, serving in state legislatures. They're acting urgently on climate change because they're going to live it. They care deeply about student debt because they have it. They're utilizing big tech but still want to regulate it because they understand how it works. There are some pretty well-known politicians among this generation. Pete Buttigieg, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Others, not household names. Millennials have been disrupting, revolutionizing technology, commerce, and are powering major social movements. Today, I'd like you to meet Charlotte Alter. I've actually known her since she was seventh grade. And while she may have been a standout singing The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow in the middle school production of Annie, Charlotte's superpower is not musical theater. It's thinking big thoughts and writing. Her debut book, Guessing the First of Many, is titled The Ones We've Been Waiting For, just out this spring, and she introduces us to 10 millennials. These 10 folks are swimming in the pond of politics, but as I read it, I was clear that this book offers nonprofit leaders some valuable insights. My goal today is to offer Charlotte a platform to share those insights and to kick around the ways in which her work can inform those of you who lead nonprofit organizations and lead movements and to offer you the chance to meet someone who, as a millennial herself, is in her own right one of the ones we have been waiting for. Greetings, and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders. You can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. Charlotte Alter is a national correspondent at Time Magazine covering politics and social issues. She's covered the 2016, 2018, and 2020 campaigns, the Women's March, anti-Trump resistance, and the rise in activism around gun violence and climate change. Her coverage often has a special focus on women in politics, social movements, and youth activism. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, writer and journalist Mark Chisano, two pink chairs, and one dying plant. Charlotte, thanks for agreeing to a request from one of your middle school friends' moms. This is fun. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I was so excited uh, to hear from you. And I'm excited to report that we now have a second plant and it's also dying. (laughs) Um, Well, it's consistency is a good thing, I suppose. (laughs) So... Um, because I have written a book, um, I am always interested in people's why. So it's clear that you're a great writer. You've written cover stories for Time Magazine. Uh, you didn't have to write a book. Um, but I'm guessing it didn't surprise you or anyone who knows you well that you were going to write a book. Um, why did you write this book? And what gap did you feel that the book was going to fill? That's a great question. So this, 
process started for me on the day that Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm -hmm. So that was in, I want to say, May of 2017. Okay. Um, And I... I was sitting at my desk uh, at time and I just, you know, this, he, he gave an announcement, he gave a speech announcing he was withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement. And I just saw red, like I must have gone temporarily insane because, because <laughs> I, to me, and then, and then as I, I spent, I didn't even get any work done that day because I was spending the whole day, um, Googling the ages of all of the people who had encouraged Trump to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. And there were 22, yeah, there were 22 Republican senators who wrote him a letter saying, Paris Agreement sucks, let's leave it. And the average age of those people was 64 years old. And that's only because there were two guys in their 40s, like Ted Cruz, and I want to maybe say Tom Cotton, but I, but I might not be exactly right about that. But like, there were five octogenarians on that list who were telling the president who needs climate, you know, let, let's get out of it. This sucks. And to me, it just seemed like such a clear, such a clear kind of shot of, or such a clear example of like the old eating the young, Mm -hmm. all of these old men uh, impetuously getting rid of this thing that was designed to protect future generations for really no good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I began to see this that way, I began to realize that so many of the things that Trump was doing in his administration were, you know, were were also examples of the old eating the young. Right. Um, when Trump cancels DACA, that's something that or, which has now been reversed and he's not gonna be able to do it and all this stuff, but he tried to cancel DACA. Um, that's something that dis- that obviously affects young immigrants. It affects all immigrants, but it specifically affects young immigrants. Um, when he bans transgender people from the military, there aren't a lot of 70-year-old transgender people in the military. Um, that is an issue that that is really, really important to young people and yes. is not really as important to older people. Yep. Um, so I just began to see this pattern all over. And that's kind of what started this, the process of writing this book. But really, it was the climate agreement that just, I would just, I couldn't, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a bag that um, it just simply says the words, I can't even on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I could not even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounded like you couldn't even, right. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the book structure for a second. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if I'm right about this at all, but I did have this, I did have this vision about uh, how you crafted the book. Um, and I'm not sure if you are or if our listeners are fans of Homeland, but in this first season, Carrie Matheson uses this like huge bulletin board to figure things out. And she has cards and pictures and notes all over it. There's doesn't seem to be any method to the madness on the wall. And then things kind of all come together. Um, the board always kind of looks like a hot mess and actually Carrie Matheson is kind of a hot mess also, but she's brilliant. And so I, I told my wife that as I was reading it, I imagined that you had this board and that you crafted the narrow, the narrative through line of the book and put the pieces together because there's this kind of really cool intersection of historical events as these 10 millennials, and we'll get to them in a second, were growing up and winding their way into adulthood from Columbine, Parkland, Sandy, 
<coughs> excuse me, Puerto Rico, Virginia Tech. So I was really curious. Um, and I don't know if this is an obvious question or not, but did you pick the main characters first and then realize that each of the 10 were shaped in profound ways by those events? Or actually, did you look at the events and then slot the character, pick the characters based on the events and how those particular Im- Im- individuals were shaped by those particular events? So you're totally right about the bulletin board. Oh, I feel. Uh, oh, I feel. Yeah. I feel so you're, vindicated. You're totally right. I had a complete. I had actually. I had two bulletin boards. <laughs> I had a. I had a book structure bulletin board, and then I had a mental health bulletin board. And the book structure bulletin board was like, this chapter goes here, like put this, you know, this is this year, this happens this year, like put this there. And then the mental health bulletin board was like, stupider people than you have done this. Don't buy shoes. (laughs) Don't buy skincare that you don't understand. Like, don't buy pants you haven't tried on. (laughs) And the mental health bulletin board was right in front of my face. So like if I was wasting time and on the internet trying to buy skincare, the card would look right at me and say, don't. But to answer your second question. I am so stealing the mental health bulletin board and mm-hmm. I'm using it with my coaching clients for sure. Please do. Onward hot. Carry on. Yeah, <laughs> um, please do. So uh, so I, I, I did the events first. So I, I started the book um, I started the process with the under, you know, knowing that I was going to be, that there were several major events, but also kind of like trends, things like trend, trend, um, forces is the, is a better word than trends, but like, yes, good. Yeah. Forces like student debt or, um, the, the great recession or, uh, the rise of the internet, like mm-hmm. that, that, that not only these forces, but but also major events like 9-11 and the war in Iraq and Obama's election and the Great Recession, that all of these things had shaped the political thinking of the millennials who grew up while all that was happening and that they would inform the way this rising generation of leaders thinks about America. Right. Um, so I started with the events and I basically was, uh, I spent about a year searching for for uh, elected leaders born between 1989 and nine, sorry, 1980 and 1996, who, um, had, whose lives had intersected in some way with, with one of these things. So that meant that I kind of, you know, an example of the type of person that I left out, you know, yeah, I, I was actually going to say, I'm not going to ask you who number 11 and number 12 was because I, I oh, think yeah. I'd be disappointed, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, for example, somebody, there are a lot of really exciting, really compelling people who didn't make the cut. Like, for example, Joe Kennedy third. like he didn't, he, he's somebody who just kind of, who went to college, went to law school, did some interesting, I think he might've served in the, he might've done some volunteer work abroad, immediately got into politics, you know, his, he was not impacted in a significant way by By those events. Yes. Yes. So he didn't, his life didn't illuminate that for my readers. So I didn't include him. Um, And so that meant, honestly, you know, it meant also including people who probably are not household names and are never going to be a president and 
are not somebody that necessarily every American needs to know, except that they their lives help illuminate something that um, a lot of millennials went through. And one example of that is Braxton Winston, who is a city council member in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's probably the least well-known of almost anybody in the book, but he got his start as a Black Lives as a Black Lives Matter organizer right. after um, Keith Lamont Scott was killed in Charlotte. So it was like telling his story was a way to explain how Black Lives Matter shaped this generation. Yep. Um, and it's not really about, oh, this person's going to be president. That's why you have to know them. Right. So, um, so they had to, they, they were, in, they were interested, they had interesting narratives. They were diverse yeah. narratives, but they also were vehicles in some ways to tell the larger story of the force or the event and its implications on that generation. Exactly. Exactly. So I didn't include people who kind of just were in a bubble and, and, and didn't seem to have really been affected by any of this. Um, so the, um, the 10 politicians that you profiled, the oldest was Pete Buttigieg, born yes. in 82. And AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, was born in 1989, which I'm guessing might be the same, the same year you were born. Yeah. Um, and um, <clears throat> I, what I liked about it is that I was able to read about people that I did know and learn about their journeys but that I was also able to learn about um, other people I didn't know, like the mayor of Ithaca, who's like 12 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That was actually very ageist, wasn't it? Um, No, it's fine. I like that guy because he's funny. Yeah, I thought, I, I, I thought he had a lot of I thought he had a lot of personality, yeah. but I but I think it's very interesting because I do think, you know, um, it's 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 a there's all different kinds of ways to tell the story of the impact of forces and events on a generation, and to tell it through the through the narrative of ten individuals, I think is uh, stickier, as Malcolm Gladwell, or, you know, Malcolm Gladwell and some yeah. others would say, which is it sticks with you. You actually retain the sort of the impact in a, in a much bigger way. Um, so, so I, you know, I want to get, I want to be completely honest. I wasn't actually going to read the whole book. (laughs) Um, so my daughter said, Oh, Charlotte Alter wrote a book. You have to read it. And I was going to skim it to see what I learned about millennial leadership, but it was a, but it's a really good read. That's actually the reason it's a good read is for all the things we're just talking about in terms of its structure, right? And so I, I, I kept going. <laughs> um, wow, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like nobody actually reads books anymore. So uh, thank you. Uh, no, you're welcome. So I have this targeted audience we're talking to today mm-hmm. who are not necessarily elected officials. They probably, they, they probably lobby affected, elected officials. They advocate for things with elected officials. Officials, maybe the elected officials open purse strings for them. Um, but I, um, so, and this group tends to skew older, not quite as old as the octogenarians who voted to get out of the Paris Climate Accord, but um, many of my listeners are older. And I, and I am often asked, as if I somehow or another have the answer to this question, and I don't know how I could, how to cultivate leadership in millennials, how to draw them into organizations, how to build a leadership pipeline that includes them. And frankly, I don't have a good answer, which is kind of one of the reasons I read your book. So 
What have you learned about millennials, and you count as one among them, um, that would be useful for my listeners to know, and I, I get you're not an expert on millennials, that what it might take to nurture millennial leadership. And I'm going to set aside the whole institution piece for a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just, yeah, what did you learn about what it takes to ignite and nurture leadership in millennials? So one of the things that I, one of the things that I researched for this book that I ended up finding really interesting was the way that parenting changed in the 1980s and 90s in particular. Um, So what that means is that millennials were, were parented differently than boomers were. And we got different messages and there was different emphasis. And even frankly, the whole idea of like parenting as a verb is, was a relatively new thing. I mean, Joan, I don't know if your parents would have said, I'm parenting now. <laughs> like, it, you know, like my, my grandparents, so it was like, they were like, I'm having a cigarette, go like, you know, play in the dump or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't remember ever being suggested that I play in a dump, but yeah, the cigarette part, I, that's familiar. Right. right. But, but so So what that means is that millennials uh, grew up with this messaging that was very, um, very, that, that once you start thinking about it, it's very familiar. It's believe in yourself, you know, reach for the stars, go for your dreams, trust your gut. Um, But mostly it's this idea of believing in yourself. Okay. And so that's why I think a lot of people have trouble like that's where the annoying millennial stereotype comes from, which by the way, is true. There are, there are a lot of annoying millennials. There are also a lot of annoying boomers. Like I'm not, I didn't write this book to to like, to, you know, push back, to push back on the idea that millennials can be a little bit annoying and entitled because it's certainly true. Every generation has annoying people in it. Um, but, but I do think that there is this, um, There's also, so, so, so there's the believe in yourself mentality. And then there's also the disruptor mentality, which is that a lot of millennials have seen that the young people who've been the most successful, the earliest are people like Mark Zuckerberg, who blew up the internet and just started a whole new thing and, and, and saw that things were working in a certain way and decided, you know what, I'm going to do things a different way. And in fact, a lot of the, uh, you know, not to bring it back to politics, but a lot of the, the political leaders who are most popular with millennials right now are also disruptors. It's the people who want to upend the system. It's the people who want to turn over the apple cart. So I think one of the challenges for um, sort of a passing of the baton or a transfer to power, of, of power or, a, or grooming new leadership or building a pipeline is how do you get... Um, how, how do you get people invested in essentially building on and maintaining and expanding what's already been built rather than upending it and starting over? Um, and I don't, and I think it's also important to recognize that part of the reason that there is this disruptor mentality is because um, boomers have held on in a, for a really long time in a lot of these positions. So there is a little bit of a sense among millennials of like, oh, you know, I've been working at your company for 
eight years and you're finally offering me a, you know, a, a tiny raise and a minor promotion, like too little, too late. Like, and, and what I, the other thing that I found in, in researching this is that boomers actually advanced in their careers faster and made more money more quickly right. than millennials have. So by the time a baby boomer was, you know, 33 years old, which is by the way, a lot of millennials are 30. Millennials are anybody under 40 right now or between 22 and 40, 24 right. and 40. So, you know, think about where you were when you were 40. You probably had a house and a car and kids and we're married and, and all of these staples of everything, but um, the married part, Charlotte. Everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it's, ab- it's absolutely you know? true. By tw- by, I was 28 years old and had been bought my first house in Montclair. Yeah. And so yeah. it's a completely different experience. And we haven't even layered on top of that COVID-19. Exactly. Exactly. So, so now, so now millennials are in the middle of their second recession in their adult lives and they many of them aren't even 40 years old. So I think there's a real sense of like, um, that this, that the incremental progress isn't addressing the problems that a lot of millennials feel like they face. And that is true on a political level, but it's also true within companies and within institutions that there are a lot of millennials who feel like, you know, this like junior associate director uh, promotion is kind of bull. I've been here for 10 years. I'm 39 years old. I do more than anybody else at this company. Like, like why can't, I have more responsibility and like, why can't I actually implement what I want to do? Um, so what I heard in that was if you- A little can, bit of entitlement. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I got that. Um, what I, some of what I heard in that is that if you're, in order for a millennial to, and again, I know we're doing like gross generalizations for yeah. 800, Alex, but what um, that you you have to ignite- their startup slash disruption juice, right? You have to create a space for them in an organization that feels that way so that they don't, that's kind of what I was hearing you say. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly it. And, and, but what I think the recipe for that is, is money, time, space and freedom. So it's like what the reasons start the, the reason for example a startup often gets all the you know has all the energy that it has is right. because they have a lot of this a lot of investment of money and resources into doing the project that they want to do and also they get to do it their way. You know, if 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 they can um if they can get it done working 16 hour days a day, four days a week. Sure. If they can get it done working five hours a day, six days a week. Sure. I think there's a lot of, I think millennials are very results oriented Uh and there's, there's a lot of a sense of like, listen, I can just get like, if the point is to get this done, just let me get it done my way. Why do I have to do it in, in the way that somebody was doing it in 1991? my life is totally different than your life was in 1991. Why am I being held to the same 
kind of timing and scheduling standards as somebody from an entirely different generation living an entirely different type of life. So, I mean, I, I can, I, and I want to clarify here, I don't manage anybody. I'm just a journalist, you know, I can understand why this is, would be irritating to somebody who's like, Hey, listen, at this, you know, at this company, we get to work at nine 30, like get to work at nine 30. <laughs> um, and I get that. And I'm not trying to say that like, you know, but, but I, I do think that the same attitude that we're seeing on the political level is also playing out in companies and nonprofits and, and corporations around the country, which is, Hey, we tried it your way. Some things worked. There were some big problems. Let's try it our way now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not, would you, would you actually go so far as to say that the ones that we're waiting for are actually sort of not really that interested in institutions at all? Um, that maybe the millennials are, you know, the, the, that maybe in the nonprofit sector, the millennials most interested and valuable are sort of as, uh, and I'm using words in your book so I can quote it, sure, are sort of fuck the system, not fix the system people. So I think it's a little tricky. I mean, I, I definitely think they're, so just to clarify for your listeners, what fuck the system and fix, fix the system is. Yes, these are kind of, yeah. These are sort of the two modes of reform that millennials have basically adopted. And the the way I describe it in the book is that fix the system is kind of like the Obama bucket. The people who got into government after Barack Obama, they believed in, you know, pragmatic progressivism, incremental change, the affordable, they love, you know, they, to them, the Affordable Care Act is like the model of what, um, what a, what a successful healthcare reform looks like. And then there are the fuck the system people who really have their roots in Occupy and Black Lives Matter. Right. And there is a, it, that is a sort of a model of like leaderful organizing with a goal towards structural change. And I would argue that Bernie Sanders and AOC are kind of the um, fruits of that movement. Um, so, so that kind of thinking looks to something like Medicare for all upending the entire healthcare system and starting from scratch as the way to fix healthcare. So, um, I think that, you know, one of the, so I definitely think that there is a very, uh, heavy fuck the system like instinct in this generation, but also people have to live in the world, right? So people have to, you know, have a job that pays them and they have to pay their rent and they have to buy food at the grocery store mm-hmm. and you can't buy food at the grocery store with protest chance. So, right. <laughs> so, um, I do, I, I think that sometimes, you know, there's certainly a like very rebellious, there's certainly a real radical streak, but I, I think that oftentimes boomers tend to kind of like over, overread that almost or think that all millennials are that way or think that the people who are protesting in the streets are anarchists who don't want to have any kind of, you know, normal life. But those people have to go home at the end of the day and, you know, pay rent and do all the things that a normal person has to do. So um, I would say that there is some skepticism of institutions. And I would say that that skepticism is somewhat justified because if you look at a 
if you look at the millennial lifespan, it's been punctuated by a series of institutional failures. So mm-hmm. for example, um, uh, you could argue that the war in Iraq was a major failure of America's foreign policy institutions. They thought that there were weapons of mass destruction there. I, either they thought there were or they lied and said they were. Either way, it's a failure. Um, the uh, financial crisis, a lot of millennials saw that as a failure of America's financial institutions because they screwed everybody. Um, and there are a lot of young people who saw the outcome of the 2016 election as a failure of America's political institutions because mm-hmm. because there were a lot of smart Democrats on television saying that Donald Trump could never be elected president, and then he was. So how much do they know? Um, and so I, I think that this skepticism of institutions uh, is a broad skepticism, but I don't think it necessarily means I don't want to work at a company or I don't want to work at a nonprofit or all nonprofits are bad. Right. I, I think it means that millennials want to um, interrogate the way that a lot of these companies and nonprofits exist in society and specifically interrogate their corporate ties. You know, how much do... Um, How much money do you get from corporations? Which corporations? What are those corporations doing? You know, if you're a, if you're a nonprofit, um, advocating for clean water and you take money from Exxon Mobil, you know, how, like, is that a conflict of interest? I think that, that young people, because of Citizens United, because of Occupy Wall Street, because of the Bernie Sanders movement are very clear eyed about the way that money moves through our, political system. And that includes, in some ways, parts of the nonprofit sector. So I think that there is, that's, I think, why you've seen the rise of these kind of leaderless movements that don't have, they don't, they don't fundraise, so they don't have any funders. They don't, (laughs) they don't uh, get money, so they don't have any kind of obligations to their donors. And I think that a lot of millennials see that as really refreshing but also they have to live in the real world. So Right. Interesting. So we are talking with um, Charlotte Alter. Charlotte is a national correspondent at Time Magazine covering politics and social issues. She has covered 2016, 2018, and the 2020 campaigns. But we're really focused today on her new book called The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. And um, I really recommend it. Um, and honestly, I recommend it. I mean, not, not that I, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not in the closet as a Democrat here, but I also think that it is, um, regardless of your political stripes, I think that there's a lot to understand here about a generation that I am not a part of. So, um, uh, and, uh, we've been really talking about, because I get asked this a lot about sort of the where do millennials fit in the nonprofit space? Uh, and nonprofits not, you know, it's just a funny thing. These people in the 1970s who started nonprofits, they were, they were a lot like though, you know, they, they had some of those same attributes, right? They wanted to, they didn't want to sit idly by. They wanted to get out of the stands and onto the field and they wanted to make change happen. And they created institutions. And now they're, now people are in their fifties and sixties and they have these institutions. And, um, 
and are trying to find how to create some sense of diversity in their organizations that that um, that create a sense of belonging for millennials in many ways. Um, but I want to shift gears a little bit uh, because I was um, I was. I follow your writing and you wrote two really excellent pieces for time. One was about uh, Greta Thunberg and the other one was about the Parkland school shooting generation. And there, there may be people that are listening that um, that don't understand just what a rock star Greta is. So can you give the quick 411 on Greta? Oh my gosh, Greta is such a rock star. So she is, I guess when I talked to her, she was 16, but maybe she's 17 now, but she for the last five years has really been at the forefront of the youth climate movement. And she's, she's a Swedish teenager who uh, maybe just a year ago, I think um, started striking for climate outside of the Swedish parliament. She has braids, she wore a raincoat and she was all by herself skipping school with a sign saying school that said school strike for climate in Swedish, which I don't speak, but, um, (laughs) so, uh, and then people started to join her and then all over, and then soon all over Europe, kids started to skip school to demand climate action. And then all over the world, kids started to skip school for climate action. So the, um, major, uh, the major climate strike last year, last September, um, that was because of her. So I think that she's, what she's been really effective at is weaponizing this idea that, um, that the inaction of older generations is killing younger generations and making climate into a generational war, which frankly it is. Um, and so, and so I think that she's also really steely eyed about looking you know, executives and leaders in the face and saying, you're killing us. Stop, stop burning fossil fuels. Stop flying on your private jets to um, Davos. You know, stop like, because, because one of the things, and I think this gets back actually to what we were talking about earlier. One of the things that I think is a challenge for the nonprofit sector is that a lot of these younger people have a laser, um, radar, a, a, a laser sharp radar for hypocrisy. Right. So if you are, you know, so if you're the head of a, of a environmental nonprofit and you're flying on a private jet, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are, um, I mean, this is another, if, if, if you are a college president and your, and your college is, you know, putting, young people in debt by charging them hundreds of thousands a year to go to college. And you're, you know, and you've got a private chef and you're, you know, jet jetting in between your, your Aspen house and your house on Martha's vineyard. Like they notice that and they're going to call you out for that because why should an 18 year old be, you know, graduating from college with $200,000 of debt when the person in charge of the university is living like a king. So there's so I, I think that in some ways Greta kind of is an emblem of that kind of clear-eyed attitude towards hypocrisy um, that I think a lot of young people are embracing. So I got two questions for you about Greta. Yeah. Okay. One is okay. So she's she's not a millennial. No, uh, she's Gen Z. She's Gen Z. Yeah. Uh, just actually curious. 
for as long as we're in the world of stereotypes, how is she, how is she different from the 10 folks you profile? Oh yeah. So Gen Z and millennials, um, are pretty different, are, are, are different. I mean, they have a lot of political similarities in that they actually tend to align a lot on a lot of the issues, but their style is different. And I also think that has to do with the age. So the thing to remember about millennials is that Obama was in, was an incredibly important role model for millennials. Okay. So most millennials were in their teens or 20s, you know, kind of old enough to be aware of, like, um, aware and also participate in the Obama election. Many right. of them went to work in the Obama White House. A lot of people ran for office because of Obama. Mm-hmm. So that kind of model of pragmatism and, and, and sort of, um, unity and that this, that sort of statesman like Obama vibe is something that I think a lot of millennials embrace. And Gen Z were sort of too young to really absorb Obama's. And, and back to that point, one thing I've actually noticed covering millennial politicians is that a lot of, um, a lot of millennial political leaders, particularly men, particularly young black men, um, literally imitate Obama's speaking style. Not, not, not everyone, of course, but it's something I've noticed in a lot of speeches. Obama's kind of pattern of speaking of where he goes up at the end and it sounds like an Obama speech. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. we must come together, da, 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 da. Like, but some of that um, is also sort of, um, sort of a preachy, like a preach kind of vibe too, right? Exactly, exactly. So there's a whole generation of political leaders who are in the Obama mold. Mm -hmm. And I think Gen Z was kind of too young to absorb that. And instead, they really came of age in the Trump era, which was an era of protest. So I don't think we've really seen, I mean, the oldest Gen Z, the oldest members of Gen Z are in their mid-20s now. So I don't think we've really seen what Gen Z is going to look like when they're elected because it just, it hasn't, I mean, maybe there's one or two elected or a handful of electeds in Gen Z right now, but they're just not old enough yet to have really done that. But we have seen what Gen Z looks like as activists. In fact, we've seen it just over the last couple of months with the George Floyd protests. Totally. So this is a generation that's extremely, extremely good at activism. They're extremely good at confrontation. They're extremely good at movement building. They're extremely good at digital organizing, which, yeah. So I have a question for you. So, you know, the the standard non, you know, sort of the standard nonprofit institutional mold would say, okay, I run blah, 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 environmental organization. And I want Greta Thunberg to be my honoree at our gala. So does Greta do stuff like, like, I I just, like, would a Gen Z person, and uh, again, like, because that's, that's what people do in nonprofit institutions is they see somebody who stands out, who's really taken a stand and they say, how can I, um, how can I align myself with the power of that individual and have it accrue benefit to my cause, which is not inherently a bad thing, but I just wonder if we're going to see a change in that stuff too. Yeah. So it's funny. I've noticed this with both Greta and with the Parkland kids. Um, the answer is no. Like 
they don't want to go to your gala. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, maybe I'm not trying to say like, like, but also, um, why would they? It's a completely different, um, you know, it, it, it is a, it represents a completely different model of change and model of social progress than the one that they, um, embrace. Yeah. So that, yeah, that, that, that they embrace. So for example, because, and this is back to what I mean by hypocrisy, right? I think that there is a, um, a real understanding, um, partly because of Occupy, partly because of Bernie Sanders, but also partly because young people have just been, have just educated themselves about this over the last 10 years. There's a real understanding of the way that rich individuals and wealthy corporations use their donations essentially to launder their reputations, which is something that, um, has that. And and so I think that they, um, that when, uh, Greta Thunberg looks out and sees a bunch of, uh, you know, airline executives applauding her for being so brave to stand up. She's like, I don't need your applause. I need you to reduce air travel so that we can get carbon out of the atmosphere. (laughs) So I think that there's a real kind of frustration with some, uh, with what many young people see as like symbolic gestures of support rather than actual change. And yeah. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about the the the, the Parkland kids for a minute. Um, and <clears throat> I hope I'm kids is an okay phrase That's to fine. use here. Yeah. Oh, the Parkland kids. So in your piece, you actually uh, you wrote a piece about all of them about that sort of the, the core posse, and you said something like you, you said how a movement catches fire is always a mystery, but the Parkland kids seemed match seem matched for the moment and i and i find this to be the the question about greta thunberg as well is um uh is it a mystery is it do you think it's a mystery about about how a movement catches fire and i guess the 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 follow-up question so i'm I'm gonna pretend i'm a journalist for a minute i have a a question and a follow-up so my question is do you really think it's a mystery and um in the case of Greta and the and the the Parkland gun violence movement, um, is it is it sustainable? Like where where's it headed? Because um, yeah. we because you know those of us those of us boomers who've been in the trenches know uh, you know for a long time know that we're talking you know marathon not sprint in many cases um and and maybe that's rejected by millennials i'm not sure um but i guess that's the question so my two questions are how a movement catches fire is it a mystery and then the the and and where are these movements now are they and what keeps them aflame or are they are you know sort of what's the future for them So I think you just hit the nail exactly on the head. And it's one of the main kind of pitfalls of this kind of style of movement that Gen Z and millennials have really embraced. So the reason I do think it's a little bit of a, first of all, between you and me, I'm pretty sure that my editor wrote that line. (laughs) (laughs) So 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's for those of you who've never written. Also, by the way, if you don't, if you don't like the headline of something, it's it's a pretty good chance yeah. the journalist didn't write it. I just, right. Just just a little clue in you on a few things. Um, but the reason I do think it is kind of a mystery is that, and this is something that I feel like causes a lot of consternation and a lot of frustration within activist and nonprofit groups, is like. Greta Thunberg was not the first person to speak up about climate change. The Parkland, you know, Parkland was not the first school shooting. Far from it. You know, after every school shooting, there is pain, there is rage, there are people speaking out. So I guess in some ways, the question, the, the reason it's a little bit mysterious is why, the, why, these, why did these kids catch fire? Why did Greta catch fire? Yep. Why, you know, you know, this has this has happened over and over again. Why was that a moment that felt like a real change? Honestly, same with the recent George Floyd protests. Unfortunately, unfortunately, police have been killing black men with impunity in this country for decades. Yep. Why was this the one that sparked a national uprising? Yep. I mean, I I can go back to 1998 and say why Matthew Shepard, right? And right. Um, although I actually have a point of view about that. Um, I'm uh, curious, why Why do you think it was Matthew Shepard? Because he, um, I, I think it, in some ways, um, uh, because he was white, because he, he looked like he could be your next door neighbor, that there was a, right. there was something. And I also think the sort of the crucifixion, kind mm-hmm. of metaphor on the fence. Like there was a lot of, yeah. there was a lot of things that made it um, sticky actually. And yeah. I, but I also, I think that if Matthew Shepard had been a different kind of person, it, it, it may not have become, it not, he may not have, you know, after his passing become such a, uh, you know, have led right. a, a movement against hate crimes. That's super interesting. I, I bet you're right. I bet you're totally right. Um, well, sure, because just like you said, there how, how many hate crimes had there been of you right. know, black queer people in Newark, right? And then they're, exactly. they're not, they're not right. going to make it to the front page of Time magazine, right? So I think that this is and and but to your question about sustainability, yep. I think this is actually one of the real challenges here, and one place where I think the nonprofit sector has a real kind of room to grow and to kind of knit together this like activist, leaderless, um, spontaneous activist uh, series of movements that we're seeing and institutional, real institutional power. Because uh, frankly, I think a lot of the Parkland kids are burned out. Mm -hmm. They have, they are, they're in college. I mean, they're fine. It's not like they're, uh, you know, but they're in college. A lot of them just kind of want to like live their own life and not be, um, you know, act not be like leaders of a movement Standard anymore. Bears, they're, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, they're seven. They, I guess, they were seventeen years old. Now they're nineteen years old. They just want to like drink beer with their friends, like other nineteen-year-olds do. Mm-hmm. So, um, and frankly, you know, I think Greta is a little bit different because she sort of um, has styled herself as kind of like the patron saint of the of the activist of the environmental movement, and her, you know she lives her life that way. Um, but I do think that these, this kind of like burst of hot energy around a movement mm-hmm. that lasts for a couple weeks 
and then sort of fades um, is something that younger activists are really struggling with. And I think it has a lot to do with this leaderful structure of a lot of peace movements. Yes. So Greta is an example of somebody like you mentioned getting Greta to a gala or to a, a, a an event. I mean, I'm not inviting her to one. I just want to no, be clear. Of course, no. But like, she's an example. That's an example of like, you know, she is so visible uh-huh. that when somebody says, oh, we want somebody from the youth climate movement, her, let's get her. One of the things that I've noticed covering um, Black Lives Matter in particular is that the movement is structured in a way where you know, you have one person leading a protest in Minneapolis, another person leading a protest in, um, like it's Saturday, one person's leading in Minneapolis, another person in Philadelphia, another person in Miami, another person in New York. Sunday, there will be whole new, a whole new set of people leading totally different protests in all of those places. So when Black Lives Matter first started in 2014 or 20, uh, in, in 2014, a lot of editors and I think just insti- people in institutions said, okay, where's Martin Luther King? Who's the, who's the Malcolm X? Let's get him. Let's totally. get her. You know, who's the leader? And there isn't one because this movement is just structured in a way that is more horizontal. And so I think it's really hard to isolate this one person is the most effective organizer. This one person is the leader of this movement. This one person is the, is the single figurehead. And I think that the movement wants it that way because it makes it um, in, in some ways less sustainable because it means that it's more spontaneous. It's a little bit less coherent, a little bit less strictly organized. But in a, a lot of other ways, it makes it more sustainable because when I talk to some of the original founders of Black Lives Matter, they pointed out correctly, look, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And then his movement really kind of um, died with him in many ways, or the, or the, the, his leadership structure um, disintegrated when he was assassinated. And so having a leaderful movement means that the strength of the movement doesn't get boiled down to the strengths and weaknesses of any one particular person. It's actually interesting. Um, it's a different model from, so, you know, if you take a particular sector like LGBT equality, right? Like how many times I met with people when I was at GLAAD who said, sort of like, like, like who's in charge? <laughs> who's in yeah. charge of all those gays? And, um, yeah. and I remember, I actually remember sitting with Rosie O'Donnell saying, I just want, she said to me, I just want to give one check to big gay America. <laughs> right. And, and, yeah. right. And so there is a hunger for, for that. And, and it, but it doesn't exist within sectors in the nonprofit arena writ large either. Right. So you have climate change and you have, 12 different organizations and each of them are quote unquote, you know, sort of fighting for dollars and fighting for, you know, press airtime and whatever it Mm -hmm. might be. So it's a, it's a different challenge in within institutions, but it's the same one is that, that, that I, I, although I think boomers are more hungry for the, the, the leader than, than millennials are, but neither, neither one fills that gap. Well, and I think you also have to look at how at 
the reason boomers are more hungry for that leader role um, is because the social movements that they grew up with at their time had them. And the reason that those social movements had them is because there wasn't social media. So social media allows this leaderfulness. It allows... It diffuses leadership. Yep. Right. It, it, exactly. It allows for this horizontal structure. It allows for there to be something where somebody in Minneapolis can talk to somebody in San Francisco and in 30 minutes, they can plan protests at the same, you know, about the same thing in different places, which is something that Martin Luther King Jr. and SNCC, you know, would never have been able to do because the technology wasn't there for it. Um, so, so for, so for, I think a lot of boomers, they see, they think civil rights movement, MLK and Malcolm X, uh, feminist movement, Gloria Steinem. Yep. And, and, and they're used to seeing movements as embodied by specific people. And right. I think that millennials and Gen Z don't see it that way. Yeah. Interesting. So speaking of specific people, I'm going to end this podcast by talking about you. Um, <laughs> So I thought it was really interesting that you never actually come out as a millennial yourself in this book. So, it, right, yeah. it, it is that if I didn't know that you were, hmm. I wouldn't know that you were. So I was. I, oh, that's I, interesting. I thought it was really interesting that you didn't actually self-identify as one of the ones we've been waiting for. And I just so I was curious whether that was a an error of omission or whether you just decided. I don't know. I was just interested about yeah. the thinking of that. That's interesting. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was ever really trying to hide that I was a millennial because, you know, people could just look at the picture on the back of the jacket and see that <laughs> approximate my, yeah. right, approximate my age. Um, but I was very conscious of not making it a, of not writing the book in the first person yeah, and not using the royal we. Um and the reason I was conscious of that is that one, I'm a reporter, um, but but two, I do think that there's this trap that a lot of young writers fall into, and particularly young women writers, where it's like anything they write about has to be like actually about them, um, <laughs> and and I think that it makes it particularly writing about millennials. I just think it makes it really like I didn't want anybody to say you know, you're trying to be the voice of your generation. Like that's not, that wasn't the vibe I was going for because that sets up all kinds of, you know, I can't, I don't want to be speaking for people who are a a different race than I am, different socioeconomic status than I am, different, you know, you know, I am like, I am straight. I can't speak for queer people. Like I didn't want to uh, create this thing where like I, Charlotte Alter, am speaking for all millennials. I wanted it to be like, here is, I've looked into this, I've interviewed these people, I've d- dug deeply into these topics, here's what my reporting suggests, not like, I am queen of the millennials. <laughs> um, and I was super like, you know, honestly cognizant of like what happened to Lena Dunham when she was like, I'm the voice of my generation. It's like, oh, it's, awkward so <laughs> yeah um, right. if so you're gonna I really tried to not do that yeah I mean you you might become the voice of your generation but uh, establishing yourself and, and proclaiming yourself to be that uh can put you in some dicey territory um, exactly uh so does the um uh, did COVID-19 got you working on another book wow what a great question um 
So I'm actually like bummed because I worked on <laughs> I worked on this book for like really two and a half years, and the whole time I was like, and by the way, I got married in the middle of that. So writing a book and getting married over the course of 2019 is not something I would recommend. But the whole time I was just sitting in my little hole. I'm, in I'm my sure apartment. your husband would recommend the getting married part. <laughs> Yes. No, I, I am very happy I got married. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do them at the same time. Yeah. I, I, I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, the whole time I was sitting in my little like hole of an office in my apartment, and I was like, all my friends are having so much fun without me. Like, oh, like as soon as this is over, I'm going to just, you know, go out and have fun and live my normal life and go out to dinner. And, and I basically spent two years sitting in this apartment, working on this book, thinking, oh, as soon as it's done, I'm going to like be back out in New York. Like, hello world, here I come. And then the book came out and then I went on book tour. And then four days after I came back from my book tour, New York went on lockdown for the COVID-19 pandemic. So the answer is that I'm not working on a new book because I am pretty burned out. Yeah. And also I just want to watch television, which is the thing in my life that makes me super happy. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm spending a year watching TV and then we'll talk. Uh, excellent. And uh, what is the TV that has made you the happiest? And then I really need to let my nonprofit leaders go back to work. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm rewatching Mad Men, which mm-hmm. which makes me happy because I love the costumes. Yep. And I also just watching it post Me Too is fascinating. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And um what else did I like? Um I'm watching Ozark. Yeah. Um, a little we had to stop, a little dark. A little a dark. A little dark. It's Here's little, something that I'm, I would recommend you not yeah. watch. If you watched um I was going to make a list of things not to watch during the pandemic and HBO's The Leftovers was going to be on my list. Oh, I was going to start watching that. Should I not? Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll let you read the reviews. I, okay, I, okay, okay. I'll look at it. But I will I will tell you, uh, mine, I think mine list is good. Mine list is pretty good, oh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, we're, we're also watching the new Perry Mason and it kind of makes me feel, makes me feel very old school to be like, like, should we watch Perry Mason tonight? Like, it, <laughs> it's really different, isn't it? Yeah, like it's it's like I need to be knitting or something, or like making a roast before I watch Perry Mason. <laughs> like, <laughs> All right, um, I think we are done because we have now devolved into dishing about TV. I know. Um, <laughs> this was really interesting, really fun, and I can't imagine that everybody who's listening didn't find some real valuable insights. So um, everybody who comes on to my podcast, I, I want you to know that the, the things that you share are a gift to people who are working their asses off, um, who are struggling for resources and exponentially needed at this time. So yeah. uh, it's been a shot in the arm for them today, and I really appreciate it. And um, it was it, what a wonderful excuse to catch up. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Joan, thank you so much for having me. And I also want to say, you know, thank you to all of your listeners for all the incredible work that they're doing to make this world better. Because I know, I know this, these kind of generational conversations can be a little challenging, but um, I think it's really worth it. And I think it's all going to be, I think better days are ahead. Uh, Let's leave it right there. Um, Thanks very much for listening. And um, as always, thanks for all the good work that you do. Take good care. 
Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.